In 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 23. The Word of God says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for the time you've given us. I pray that you'd speak to hearts. I pray that you'd reveal these truths to us. And I pray that these truths would change our lives. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to spend a few moments this evening and try, if I can, to give an overview of the meaning and intent of the Lord's Supper. You know, there's a lot of various opinions about what the Lord's Supper means and represents and what it's capable of. Uh, There are a lot of different groups that believe that the Lord's Supper can somehow sanctify and save a man. I don't agree with that. Uh, There are certain groups that believe it somehow makes them a, a better Christian. It imparts unto them some sort of spiritual gift when they take the Lord's Supper. I I don't believe that. I believe the Lord's Supper is a memorial. I believe it is an ordinance given to the local church, but I believe it's also meant to be a memorial. It is not meant to cause something. It is meant to recollect something. Now, that's not to suggest that the process of taking the Lord's Supper does not have uh, certain qualities about it that might drive us to change the way we're living and behaving. But merely eating the bread and drinking the grape juice does nothing supernatural within us. But the intent is for something has already happened supernatural in our lives, and we are remembering it. We are giving a memorial concerning it. If the Lord will allow me next week, I will preach on what it could be. And we'll talk about the effect that it should have in our lives. But I want us to take a few moments and look at four thoughts this evening out of the text that we've read that will give us an overview of what the Lord's Supper is and means and accomplishes. Look with me at verse number 23. And I want you to notice the first thing Paul says about the Lord's Supper. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Can I say, number one, that we notice the source of the Lord's Supper in verse number 23. We notice, number one, that it was conveyed from the Lord. Paul says, I received of the Lord. Now, there's different uh, interpretations about what Paul means by that. Some people believe that means he just heard about what happened the same way that uh, other people heard what happened. I don't believe that. I believe that what Paul's saying is God supernaturally spoke to me, revealed unto me. The reason I say that is because there's certain things in what Paul says about the Lord's Supper that the other uh, gospel writers don't give us. For instance, you won't find it in the other gospel writers where it says, This do in remembrance of me. This is unique to Paul's recording of this instance. I believe that uh, the same way that God, by special revelation, conveyed His gospel unto Paul. We know that's true because the book of Galatians. uh, He talked about how he hadn't received it from men or from angels, but from the Lord Himself had revealed the gospel uh, unto him. I believe in the same way that God has revealed or did reveal these truths concerning the Lord's Supper by direct revelation Unto Paul. Now he said, Preacher, why does that matter tonight? Because it's important for us to understand that when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not just taking something that's been conco- concocted from the minds of men. 
This has literally been instructed from on high. It's part of the reason I don't think we should mess with the ingredients of the Lord's Supper. I, I understand that, you know, there's people, and I talked about it last week, there's, there's people that have made statements about, well, you can just take it with whatever and it don't matter. I don't agree with that. Now, I don't believe that we're going to be cast off into hell if we take the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. But I do believe it matters. The, the ingredients we use, the substances we use to uh, memorialize and to observe the Lord's Supper. You say, why, preacher? Because uh, if it hadn't been for uh, the fact that it was important, the Lord Jesus would have said, just take any bread and just take any liquid. But He, on very distinct purpose, revealed to us that it was to be unleavened bread and it was to be grape juice that we were to take in observing the Lord's Supper. So we understand that when we take this, this is not something that's just a matter of man's tradition. But this is something that has been directly given from the Lord. I want you to notice not only was it conveyed from the Lord, but it was committed to the local church. Paul says, I have received from the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Now, we don't know when this took place, but we understand that evidently by what Paul says here, he had already related these truths unto the church at Corinth. But I believe there's a greater truth here, which is this, that the Lord's Supper is something that is given to the local assembly, to the body of Christ, for them to observe and remember and memorialize. In other words, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, uh, we're talking about something that has been given from the Lord, that has given very, been given very distinctly to the body of the New Testament church. You know, there's only two ordinances that were given to the New Testament church. And I don't call them sacraments. I take issue with the term sacraments. Because a sacrament denotes that it somehow imparts or induces some spiritual condition or it has some ability to supernaturally transform a person. I don't believe that they're sacraments. I believe they're ordinances, meaning they are commandments and statutes that have been given for the local church to, in obedience, uh, obey. And uh, one of them is the Lord's Supper. The other one is baptism. And neither of these things have the ability to save a person. Neither of these things have the ability to make a person more saved or better saved, as if you could be better saved. Hey, if you've been saved by God's grace, there's no better saved in the world. Amen. But uh, I take issue with the term sacraments. Now, I understand some people might use them in ignorance, not understanding the implication of them. But inasmuch as a man intends what he means by what he says, I take issue with the term sacraments. It's not a sacrament. It's an ordinance. And it has been given to the local church. I believe, and we have to be careful with what we say here, because I, I'm going to tell you, I believe that the local church is who the Lord's Supper has been entrusted to. I believe that's who it's for. But I also understand this, that in your Bible, there is the local church and there is the church. I believe in the local church. Somebody say amen to that. Out of almost a hundred times or a hundred and something times that the term church is used in the New Testament, about 97 of those times is referring to a local body of believers. But it's apparent to me that uh, the church means uh, something also more than just the local assembly. It certainly doesn't mean anything less than the local assembly, but it does mean something more than the local assembly. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, it means this. Uh, inasmuch as it talks about a church as a body, a spiritual body, it's not to the detriment of emphasis on the local assembly, but it's to relay to us that God is working in a lot of places, and uh, He chooses to manifest that work in the local body and assembly, but that doesn't mean that we're not knit together through the uh, body of Christ, even those of us that may belong to different churches. 
I fall out with some people about this issue. A lot of people believe that if a person's not a, a, a member of a local independent fundamental Baptist church, and they, they got a second-hand Christianity. Now, let me say to you tonight, I believe the best kind of church to be a part of is a local independent fundamental Baptist church. And I make no apology about that. I believe that's the best kind of church that you can be a part of. But I don't believe being a part of a church like that somehow gives you a better class of Christianity than a person that's a, a part of another church. Uh, I believe if we're saved by God's grace, then I believe we're all part of the same body. Amen? And so I say that not to de-emphasize the local assembly, and I don't think we should do that. And uh, I, But I do say that to acknowledge that though there may pe- be people that are not a part of our church, that does not mean that they're not a part of the church. And the Lord's Supper was given to the church with the intent that it be carried out in the local church. In other words, this is an ordinance that's for you and I. Uh, it's not for the uh, for for some kind of ecclesiastical priesthood. Uh, it's not something that's only to be partook of uh, by those that have reached a certain tier of ecclesiastical prominence. Uh, it's not for those that have uh, reached a certain degree of having doctorates by their names. Uh, the Lord's Supper was something that was given to God's people, to the children of God, to the local assembly for you and I to partake in and to observe. So we find the source of the Lord's Supper in the beginning of verse 23. And I'm sort of hurrying through this because I've got a place I'm going to park here in a second. We might spend a few minutes there. I want you to notice not only the source of the Lord's Supper, but notice the scene of the Lord's Supper. Or you might prefer this term, the setting of the Lord's Supper. What was going on on the night that the Lord gave the Lord's Supper to us? Look at verse 23. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said... Let me say that the night that the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper for you and I, the communion supper, it was a night of supreme betrayal in His life. The setting, and always when we read that, now, you know, I love to read John chapters number 13 through 18. I love to read. I love to read John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All those chapters are, are occupied with the night before the Lord uh, was, uh, was crucified. I love to read them. And there's some of the most sweet and beautiful and precious verses as you go through there. The Bible talks about how the, that uh, Christ, he uh, having loved those uh, that the Father gave, he loved them unto the end. And talking about how he prayed for you and I and how he had us on his heart and on his mind the night before he was crucified. How he cared for those that had followed him. Uh, precious truths about how the Lord girded himself with a towel, knelt down and washed the disciples' feet. And beautiful truths about how they leaned upon him and fellowshiped with him and communed with him that night. But let us never forget when we walk through those precious passages that there's a cloud that, that hovers over that night. And there is a setting and a scene behind it. And there's a context to it. And that context is this, that in the midst of most of those things I just mentioned, there was a man by the name of Judas Iscariot there. And Satan had placed within his heart to betray the Lord Jesus. Now you say, preacher, why does that matter? They didn't know that. That's true, they didn't know that. But the Lord Jesus knew that. And on that night, he understood that he was about to be betrayed, that he was about to be placed under custody of the world's fiercest and most unjust court and to be carried away and to be crucified as a sinner in our place. It was a night of supreme betrayal. But within that, let me remind you, it was also a night of supreme blessing. For it was within that context that the Lord, when He could have done a million other things, what did He choose to do? Now stop and consider this for a moment. 
What a man does in his last few hours on earth tells you where his priorities are. If somebody came to you and said that by midnight tonight you'll die and you'll be in eternity, your priorities would probably change. There'd probably be some things that you'd want to get in order and some things you'd want to get done. You'd understand that time is running short. And because time is running short, the value of that time would increase exponentially. When the Lord was just a few hours away from dying, from being taken, arrested, and crucified, He was so occupied with the well-being of His followers that He took time to sit down and to break bread and to institute the Lord's Supper. You understand that when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are observing something that literally occupied some of the last few hours that the Lord Jesus walked on this earth in His earthly ministry. This was a night when He chose. He could have given a million things to His disciples, but what did He give them? He gave them the communion ordinance. He could have given them anything. He could have given them riches. He could have given them power. He could have given them fame. But He bestows upon them something of far greater blessing than riches or power or fame. He bestows upon them a way to consistently remember what Christ had done for them. Don't let us never take for granted what we're doing when we're taking the Lord's Supper. Because we're doing something that literally occupied the last few hours of the Lord's earthly ministry. So we notice in this passage the source of the Lord's Supper. It was conveyed from the Lord and it was committed to the local church. We see the setting or the scene of the Lord's Supper. It was a night of supreme betrayal, but it was a night of supreme blessing. But now, and I'm going to park here for a moment, I want to say a few words about the substance of the Lord's Supper. Now, there are two components to the Lord's Supper. And I think most of us, uh, we've been around church enough that we know what they are. Uh, But for the sake of the preaching tonight, let me remind you that it is the bread which is eaten and the uh, grape juice which is drunk. And these two items were what the Lord Jesus Himself taught His disciples to partake in and observe. I want you to look at verses 24 through the beginning of verse 25. Look at the end of verse 24. What did he say? He said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. I want you to notice two thoughts about this. And I'm going to say a few words about uh, some things that, uh, well, we'll get to it. I want you to notice, number one, that there is a great type that is represented here. Now, when we talk about a type, we're talking about something that bears an uh, intrinsic representation. All through the Old Testament, you had types and shadows. They were metaphoric. They were something that was given. They were allegorical. They were something that were given that foreshadowed a future event or foreshadowed an ideal. And when the Lord Jesus tells us to take bread and to take grape juice, to take wine, to take grape juice, He's doing so because He is getting ready to vest meaning in these two objects. Now, listen, I think I, I, think I can probably explain this. I'm not a theologian, amen? But I think I can maybe help you understand what we're about to talk about. When you read about preaching, when you study about preaching, most preachers want to be, uh, want to be expositional preachers. They want expository preachers. And uh, there's two types of preaching when you study preaching. There's what's called exegesis, and then there's what's called eisegesis, okay? Exegesis means to draw meaning out of a text. Eisegesis means to vest meaning into a text. 
Typically, as a preacher, you don't want to do any eisegetical preaching. Uh, in other words, you want to find out what the Bible means. You don't want to tell folks what you think the Bible means. Amen? You want to find out what God's saying. You want to draw a meaning out of that text, not read meaning into that text. And certainly the bane of much preaching today is eisegetical preaching. But even though that's a bad word when we talk about preaching, can I say that when we examine what the Lord says about the bread and the grape juice, there is both an eisegetical meaning and an exegetical meaning. In other words, there are some, there is some truth that He imparts unto these items. And then there is some truth that He derives from these items. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, notice first off, there is a great type that is given here. This is the eisegetical preaching. Now, that bread and that wine may have meant a lot of things to those disciples. And we'll talk about what they might have meant here in a few moments. But when they walk away from the remembrance table, it has a fresh and brand new meaning. What does it mean? Well, the Lord takes the bread, He breaks it, and He says, This bread is my body, which is broken for you. He takes the cup, and He sups of it, and He says that this is my blood, which is shed for you. He says, Take and drink. So when they approached the table that night, whatever they thought about the bread and the wine in front of them, they probably did not consider it to represent the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did the Lord mean when He said this? Well, I want to say a couple things about that. Number one, I want to say this. There is no basis for the concept of transubstantiation or my father-in-law. You know, he's a better theologian than I am. He had to straighten me out last week. We was riding home together and he straightened out my theology. Uh, there's transubstantiation, the concept that the bread and the the wine become the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, supernaturally. And then there's what theologians call consubstantiation. That's the idea that they don't become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, but they still somehow supernaturally impart something unto you. Let me say that I reject both those concepts. I reject the idea of transubstantiation. You say, why? Because it's obvious the Lord Jesus was speaking in a metaphorical term. So how do you know that, preacher? Because he took the bread. He took the bread. Here's his physical whole body right there sitting in the seat. And then he, in his hand, in his physical hand, takes the bread and says, this is my body. Evidently, he had to be speaking metaphorically. Now, we could give you a lot of scriptural reasons to that, too. For instance, the Bible uh, forbid uh, the, uh, the eating of blood in the Old Testament. And, uh, of course, at this moment, uh, Christ was still under the Old Testament. Amen? And that would have been a sin against the Old Testament law if He had done that. The Bible also forbids... I don't know if you can imagine this. Uh, funny things you find all through the Bible. Would you, would you believe that God is against cannibalism? Imagine that, you know. All these rules we have to live with. The Bible speaks clearly against cannibalism. And I don't believe the Lord was advocating that. No, I think to any thinking person, it's obvious that when the Lord took the bread, He was speaking metaphorically. And He says about that bread, this is my body. And He says about that grape juice, this is my blood. I believe we get a little context to this in John chapter uh, number 6. Turn over there with me if you don't mind. John chapter 6, because we're going to read a few verses. And look down at verse number 47. While you find your place there, catch up with me when you get there. In John six forty seven, the Bible says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. 
And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but when we read that, there's a few things worth noting. One is that the Lord Jesus makes clear, uh, even back in John chapter number 6, that there is a metaphorical understanding and connection between His body and between His blood and between the idea of eating flesh or eating bread and of uh, drinking grape juice and wine. But then there's a question that the Jews ask. And I'll be honest, when you read that, just on the face of it, it almost looks like the Lord's playing hard to get. Because he says, you can't have eternal life unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they even ask him, they say, how can we do this? But you've got to remember, just a chapter earlier, and by the way, this is one unbroken theme. Just a chapter earlier, Christ had already told them what was necessary to have eternal life. Back in John chapter number 5, verse 24, listen to what he says. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You say, preacher, what do you say all that for? For this reason. We're trying to understand what it means to partake in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in John chapter 6, the Lord says you've got to do this to have everlasting life. And then we go back to John chapter number 5, and He says this is what you have to do to have everlasting life. You have to hear My Word and believe on Him that sent Me. So evidently, if, we, if A and B equals C, amen, then uh, to partake in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus is to believe on Him for salvation. To believe on Him for salvation. So to partake in His flesh and blood means to have a part in His life. How do we have a part in His life? Well, we allow Him to die in our place on Calvary. And we take His life unto ourselves. And we're given new life. So there's a great type that takes place here. And when we eat of the Lord's Supper, uh, it's not to the intent that it might save us because we've already been saved. But it's to the intent that we might remember that there was a spiritual meal that took place when we were born again, when we partook in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say, not only do we see a great type, but I want you to notice that there is a great transition taking place in these verses that we've read. Now, I told you a moment ago the difference between eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is to read meaning into a text. Exegesis is to draw truth and meaning out of the text. We might say that when the Lord draws this analogy between the bread and the grape juice and His body and blood, He is vesting meaning into these objects. But you know, I wonder this. If you study the history of the Jewish nation, you'll find that unleavened bread and grape juice had a pretty prominent place in their worship. And I would almost suggest this tonight that I don't think the Lord Jesus was just eisegetically vesting truth into these objects. But I would almost suggest that in the minds of the disciples and to the Jewish individual that would have been sitting at that table that night, 
He was also deriving text in an exegetical way out of these objects. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, to the Jew that was sitting there, these objects would have meant something. And as such, you know, the book of Hebrews tells us uh, that Jesus Christ ushered in a New Testament. Through His death, He brought in a new covenant. Well, what was the covenant that the Lord had with the nation of Israel? When did that covenant for them as a nation take place? It took place on the night when the Lamb was slain in Egypt and when they were brought out of the Old Testament system of bondage under the Egyptian authority. And the Lord brought them out. And when they came out, they became a nation. Uh, that uh, covenant was ratified at Mount Sinai and the blood was taken and sprinkled upon the law and upon the people. But it was the Passover that was used to seal that covenant with the Jewish nation when they left from being a people to become a nation. You've got to remember what the Lord had just observed that night. When He was in that upper room, it was to eat the Passover meal. Now, to this day, Jews still observe some semblance of the Passover. It's called a Seder, a Passover Seder. The word Seder means order. And what they would have been doing that night is observing the Passover. And so you've got to remember that when he takes a cup and when he drinks from it and when he passes it to him, that's a cup that probably had been used in the Passover meal. And when he takes that bread and breaks it, that unleavened bread, that was probably bread that had been used in the Passover meal. I don't have time to go into all of it, but I believe it might be interesting to look at a few things about the Passover and consider what this must have meant. Now, remember, when he says, this is the New Testament in my blood, he's saying it's the New Testament. Well, versus what? Versus the Old Testament. Versus what the Passover represented. He's saying the Passover's done. I am your Passover. I am the fulfillment. And now there is a New Testament, a new covenant that we have today. And I think when we look at what was done with those two items, we'll understand maybe what he was trying to say. Now, uh, I don't have time to go through the whole process of the Passover Seder meal. Uh, but there are a couple of interesting points that I want to point out. Uh, in the process of the Passover meal, to this day, the Jews observe a process that they call the afikamen. Now, whenever the Jews eat unleavened bread, it ain't like when we've got it and it's just the little crackers. Jews have big wafers, probably about the size of the, uh, of the inside of... Well, I'm trying to find one without money in it. Praise the Lord. <laughs> probably about the size of the inside of that offering plate. And they're these large, flat pieces of, of hard-cooked bread. Well, when the Jew observes the Passover, they have three pieces of matzah bread, is what it's called, these flat wafers. And did you know that in the meal, they will stop in the middle of the meal and they will take, they have three pieces, right? Now, I want to try to draw an analogy. I I want you to understand. You understand we have a triune God, right? God is one God in three distinct persons. The same way that that bread is one type of bread, but in three distinct entities. And they'll take the middle piece of that matzah out. Now, remember who the middle person of the Trinity is, right? That's Jesus, the Son of God. And then they will take that matzah bread and they'll break it in two. And then they'll take half of that matzah bread and they'll place it back into the stack. And then they take the other half that had been broken off and they send someone to go and hide it throughout the house. And then later on, when the meal is over, the last thing that they eat is that hidden piece of matzah bread. In fact, the term afikamen literally means that which shall be eaten last. Or we have a word for it, we call it dessert. 
And they would eat that broken piece that had been hidden last. And you know how they get that? They'll send the children to go and search the house and find that piece of broken matzah bread that had been hidden away. Now, you ready? You ready to go on a ride with me? Think with me for a moment about this. We have a triune God like those three pieces of matzah bread. And the middle piece of that triune God was plucked from its place of glory and its place of comfort and reverence and authority and was placed upon a rugged cross for it was broken for you and I. And then part of that ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is His heavenly ministry. Uh, that part was placed back in the stack. Amen. The Lord Jesus ascended after 40 days and is seated on high with the Father. If we view that piece of matzah bread as the ministry of the Lord Jesus, then half of it has been placed back in the stack. And the Jewish people, they've got no problem consuming that half. They have no problem with the idea of a Messiah that's coming to deliver them from their Gentile oppressors. They have no problem with the idea of somebody coming to set up a kingdom and somebody coming to rule and to reign. Well, the Lord Jesus, He is reigning on high, but He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come one day and set up an earthly kingdom. But you know, there's another facet to the Lord's ministry. There's the ministry of the crown, but there's also the ministry of the cross. And that's what God's doing today. He's saving sinners through the rugged cross of Calvary. And do you know that the Jewish nation as a whole lies under unbelief right now? The book of Romans teaches us. By and large, the Jewish nation is secular, is humanistic, or is ensnared within dead Judaism. The vast majority of them reject the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says uh, in 1 Corinthians that when they read Moses, there's a veil over their eyes. They can't understand much of what they're reading. It's almost like the ministry of the Lord Jesus through the cross of Calvary has been hidden away from them, and they cannot partake in it. Now, I'm not suggesting a Jew can't be saved. Of course they can be saved. But I am suggesting this that the Jewish nation is not going to uh, turn, have a great revival uh, before that day when the whole nation will turn and believe on the Lord Jesus. There's a veil over their eyes. You say, preacher, what about that? Well, here, think about this with me. Who is it that finds him? Who is it that's sent to go searching through the house and to find that piece that had been broken off and hid? It's the children that are sent, right? Uh, you know, the Bible says the Lord Jesus made it clear that except we come with the faith of a little child, we'd not enter into the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, there's Jewish people being saved today, but it's not those that are going about to establish their own righteousness through the Old Testament law, but it's those that in humble humility and childlike faith have realized they can't save themselves. And they have called upon the Lord Jesus Christ in childlike faith and believed on Him. And, you know, it's interesting because the last thing that you consume that night is that hidden piece. The last thing that a Jew needs to eat before he's done away with the Old Testament law, what is it? It's the cross of Calvary. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus at the cross of Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believeth unto Him. Once they quit going about to establish their own righteousness and see the broken bread as their sacrifice, they'll have no need anymore for Old Testament law. They'll see in Christ the fulfillment of all of it. You see, I believe even unto this day that the Jewish people miss this meaning that they themselves have vested in. By the way, you won't find that a fecumen ritual anywhere in the Bible. This was something that they, through their rabbis, have concocted. But isn't it interesting, wisdom is justified over children. That they, even in and of themselves, see some truth here, but they cannot see it all. 
So I believe in this great revelation that was taking place here that the Lord Jesus was revealing unto His disciples, I'm the bread. Uh, by the way, those two pe- to the Jewish person, you know what those two pieces that they have that aren't broken? They represent the manna. Amen? You know what to them the third piece represents? You know why they do this, the Ephekamen? They do this because they cannot offer the sacrificial lamb anymore. A Passover Seder today does not have a lamb as a part of it. Now, there's a couple groups that do it. The uh, Samaritan Jews still do it. But by and large, in most Orthodox Judaism, it's considered heretical to eat a lamb at Passover. You say, why is that, preacher? Because they don't have a temple to sacrifice that lamb at. And so they just quit taking it. So the rabbis instruct them, well, here's what you do. Instead of uh, eating a lamb, you just eat this broken bread. Isn't it funny the way human beings will try to run away from truth? <laughs> Even John himself said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Don't you know them Jews must have scratched their head when they heard that and said, huh, you know, I wonder if that's connected to the Passover lamb. But they missed it, didn't they? And even then, when the Lord took away their temple in 70 A.D., when the Romans trotted underfoot, when Titus destroyed the temple, they tried to find some substitute. But even their substitute bears testimony to the finished work of Christ on Calvary. So they would have taken the bread and they would have eaten it. What about the grape juice? Well, at the Seder meal, there are five cups of grape juice present. Five cups. There are four of them that they partake of. But then there is one cup that nobody drinks out of, and they call that the cup of Elijah. And I'll explain what that means here in a moment. But why were there four cups of the Passover meal? Well, the reason is because these four cups, each of them represents a promise that God made to the Jewish nation uh, when they left uh, Egypt. Uh, Listen to what the Bible says in Exodus chapter number 6. This is where these promises are made. Now, they're still under bondage in Exodus chapter 6. And the Lord says this to the children of Israel. It says, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in under the land, concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it you for an inherit, for an heritage. I am the Lord. And on the Passover Seder, the night of the Passover Seder, the Jews will recite these promises. And as they come to each of the promises, they will drink one of these four cups. For instance, uh, the first promise that is given is the promise of salvation. He says, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second promise is the promise of freedom. He says, I will rid you out of their bondage. The third promise is the promise of redemption. He says, I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. The fourth promise is the promise of relationship. He says, I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. The fifth promise has not yet been realized for the Jews. And that promise is, I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Do you know that the Jewish nation has never occupied the full extent of the land which God promised that they would occupy. And so they have these four cups. The four that they drink of are to recognize the promises that God has already come true on. Uh, The salvation, I'll bring you out. The freedom, I'll rid you out. The redemption, I'll redeem you. And the relationship, I'll take you to me for a people. But then they have a cup for Elijah. It's that fifth promise. 
because they have not yet realized what it is to live in liberty and freedom, unassaulted, unassailed in the land of Egypt, or I mean, I'm sorry, in the land of Israel, they leave a cup for Elijah. And that cup represents the promise that has not yet been fulfilled. Now you say, preacher, why do they call it Elijah's cup? Well, don't you remember at the end of the book of Malachi that God gave this prophecy that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would return and would bear testimony and witness. And so they're waiting for Elijah to come and herald in the age of the Messiah. And so they leave this cup empty at their table. They do not partake in it. Let me ask you something. What do you think it would have meant that night when the Lord Jesus, after partaking in those four cups, would have taken another cup and said, this is the cup of the New Testament. This is my blood which is shed for you. It's interesting when you study uh, in this passage, because uh, there are several cups present. There's the five cups that we mentioned, the four for the promises and the one cup for Elijah. Then there's the communion cup that you and I partake in when we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, there was another cup the Lord Jesus said that He wouldn't drink of the fruit of the vine anymore until He could drink it afresh and anew in the kingdom with them. But there was a cup that the Jews missed, and He did drink of it that night in Gethsemane. He said, Father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. You know what I think the Lord Jesus was saying when he took the singular cup and he said, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood? I think he was saying this. This is the culmination of all of the promises of God for you. You're not going to be drinking four and five cups. If you'll just drink of this cup, it'll be sufficient. No more of this ritualistic practice. No more of this looking in anticipation to some coming Messiah. I am He was what He said to the woman at the well. I am He. And I believe that night when He took that cup and drank it and made them drink of it, I believe He was saying, you don't have to look anymore. I am He. I am the culmination of all of God's promises for you. I believe it was a great revelation that took place that night when He showed them, you know why we could boil it down? They had been eating that bread, wondering what it meant for 1,500 years. And he says, I'm what it means. They had been drinking those cups, wondering when everything was going to happen for them for 1,500 years. He says, I am what that cup's about. Don't look to anything else. I'm what it's all about. I'm the answer. And you know, it should remind us when we take the Lord's Supper that we've got everything we need in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to find it in dead religion. We don't have to find it in determined good works. We don't have to find it in dead rituals. We don't have to find it in anything else. We've got it already in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see in this passage a word about the substance of the Lord's Supper. I want to say one final word. I'll be done tonight. I want to say a word about the statement of the Lord's Supper. So we see on this night that Paul says that the Lord gave me this. You've already had it committed unto you. This belongs to you. This is truth you need to know. We see that it was on this night that the Lord was betrayed, but instead of focusing on His betrayal, He was more focused on blessing those that had placed their faith in Him. We see the substance of the Lord's Supper. There's a great type that takes place of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And a great transition takes place, a revelation concerning the bread, and a great consolidation concerning the cups. But I believe there's a statement also that is made. I believe there is something when we partake in the Lord's Supper, a message is relayed. Look at verses 25 and 26, the end of verse 25. What does he say? He says, This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, 
Ye do show the Lord's death till He come. I see that when we take the Lord's Supper, there's a message conveyed. In fact, I'd say there's two messages conveyed. I think when we take the Lord's Supper, there's a personal message of remembrance that's conveyed to you and I. When we take the Lord's Supper, it ought to remind us of what Jesus did for us. It ought to remind us of the great sacrifice that He gave on Calvary. Listen, I don't believe that... I don't believe the Lord's Supper needs to be boring. And I don't believe the Lord's Supper needs to be somber, in a sense. But I do believe the Lord's Supper is a serious matter. For we're remembering the darkest hour of the Lord Jesus' life and ministry. We're remembering the darkest hour in human history. We're taking a few moments to draw our minds into the darkness that veiled the earth. And to hear Him cry, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And we're there to answer. It was for me, Lord. It's what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. We're saying it was for me that He did this. When we take the Lord's Supper, it ought to be a reminder to us of the great price that was paid for our sins. It's part of the reason. And listen, I don't fuss with people about this. I really don't. The church I grew up in, they got the little square crackers. And I know that's easier, especially if you've got a large church. I, I, I don't care. I just honestly, I, I don't care. It doesn't bother me if somebody else does it that way. But I sort of like the fact that we, we bake our own bread and, and break it. And the reason is because of this. Because when I see that bread, it, it, it's rough. It, it's jagged. It, 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 it doesn't look like it was made in a store. It looks like it was made by hand. And it reminds me of, the, of, of the, the cruel and rough and base experience that the Lord's earthly ministry and death for us was. It reminds me that it's not, listen, His body, it's not decorative cake to be placed under glass, but it's living bread to be consumed. He died in our place. When I take that bread in my hand, it reminds me of what a cruel and base thing it must have been for Him to condescend, uh, though he, listen, uh, he thought it not equal, or he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he didn't. He made himself of no reputation. But he took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made like unto man, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And when I take that broken bread, it reminds me that he was willing to humble himself so that he might save you and me. When I drink that grape juice, and I think it ought to be grape juice. I mean, listen, people can fuss with me. They can say, well, preacher, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just symbolism. And I understand it's just symbolism. But symbols matter. Amen? If you don't believe that, just quit paying attention to stop signs. Right? Symbols matter. And I I think it's important that it be grape juice. I, I, I always, when I go and when I buy, I mean, you can get any kind of grape juice. You know how I pick what grape juice we use for Lord's Supper? I get the reddest I can find. Because it reminds me, when I hold that little cup in my hand, of the precious blood that was shed for you and I. It reminds me of that great price. So there's a personal message of remembrance. But notice also there is a public message of redemption that is showed when we take the Lord's Supper. It's interesting. It says that uh, as often as ye do, uh, do this and observe this, it says ye do show the Lord's death till He come. That word show there is found all through your New Testament. Most of the time it's not translated as show. You know how it's usually given to us? It's usually given to us in this word, to preach. To preach. And it's almost like Paul's saying this. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, it preaches a message to those that are around you. You know, 
It's always been scriptural that lost people are going to wander into your church from time to time. Right? Paul talked about that with speaking in tongues. He said, what if an unbeliever came in here? They'd think he was mad. Right? So evidently, even in New Testament times, it was normal that every once in a while a lost person would walk into church. It would not surprise me if we had visitors next Sunday night, just because we have visitors. I mean, it, it, we got a strange church. I'm telling you, we're weird. We have visitors. It don't, I mean, we have visitors on Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, Sunday mornings. Uh, I, I think visitors probably show up on Thursday afternoons, but I'm not here to see. We have visitors, and it wouldn't be a surprising thing. What do you think it says to that visitor that maybe doesn't know the Lord? When they see believers weeping with tears in their eyes, praising the Lord, thanking God with gratitude in their hearts that He would be willing to pay such a steep price for such a sorry sinner, that He would be willing to go to the cross of Calvary. You know what that tells them? It tells them this. If God would save me, God would save you. It tells them that God loves you just like He loves me, and He loved us enough to pay the ultimate price that we could be saved. It preaches a message of redemption to those that don't know the Lord. But you know, it also preaches that message to those that do know the Lord. It reminds other believers, and that's primarily who's around when you take the Lord's Supper. It reminds other believers around us that the Lord has paid a great price for us. See, it's not given to save a man. It's given because a man's already been saved. It's not given to somehow vest into him any supernatural power. It's given because God has already given the greatest supernatural power there is when He sent His Son to die for him. And He saved him from his sins. It's a picture. It's a picture, that's right. But you know, a picture can be a powerful thing. When it paints to us a message of love so vast that the ocean could not contain it. When it paints to us a love so deep that the universe would run out before the love did. It paints to us a love so real that it can literally reach down from heaven and touch our lives. That's a powerful portrait, don't you think? And it's a reminder to you and I of what Christ did. He's our everything. And he is, He's not just our everything. He is everything. He's the culmination of it all. We don't have to go looking for anything else. If we found Him, we found everything. I wonder tonight, you know, Lord's Supper's coming up next Sunday night. If you wait till next Sunday... To get, to get your heart ready. I mean, I'm not going to say you can't get your heart ready next Sunday, but you ought to start right now getting your heart ready. And the first step in getting your heart ready is to confess any sin that you know of in your heart and life and to get your mind in a frame and a state to think about the great sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. It may be some sin you've been dealing with for a long time, but I venture it probably isn't. Maybe it's just you got in the flesh. Maybe it's just you let somebody get to you. Maybe it's just you're selfish, whatever it might have been. Little things like that. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine, right? And oftentimes we can let these things into our heart and our life. Let us tonight, not wait till next week, let us tonight ready ourselves for the Lord's Supper that we're going to be observing next week. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.